Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 365. This program is dedicated in loving memory of Malka Bas Yaakov. For those that are new to this program, I welcome you. As you can see, we've been doing this already for 364 episodes, which is 364 weeks approximately, the eighth year of My Life Chassidus Applied. I never believed that it would last that long, but it's due to your uh, questions and your commitment and your listenership that this continues, serving a vital role of applying chassidus to our contemporary lives, our challenges, our issues. So the way we work is that you submit questions, any question you like, at chassidusapplied.com. There's a forum. It's anonymous, confidential. No questions are off limits. And uh, it's just simply due to the number of questions that are coming in that there's a backup, but I assure you that I will address them all just in time. So with that, we are now in the week of Parsha Sireh, the last week of Chodesh Av, leading into the month of Elul, which will be this coming Shabbos, will be Erev Rosh Chodesh El, and next Sunday will be Rosh Chodesh El. So in the Jewish calendar, everything is significant. It's not just dates. It's not just a time marker. But actually, time is energy. So every time has its particular energy, its particular lessons, and strengths that it gives us. So let's talk about chassidus applied to the A and to Erev Rosh Chedesh We'll begin with the A. So the A, Anechim Nesim Lofnechim Ayim, the Tehidus talks about Today, behold, I give you before you two paths, the path of blessing and the path of opposite of blessing. Then the Torah continues about how the Jews divided into two camps, Har Grizim and Har Ibal, which were the two mountains. One represented the mountain of blessing, one represented the opposite of that. So the first question that came in about that is the exact question. It says in the... uh, What was going on by Mount Grizim and Mount Ebal? Who was assigned to stand on these mountains and repeat the blessings and curses? If it was just one person, how could everyone be able to hear it without some form of microphone? Therefore, was it groups of people assigned to go up the mountains so it would be louder? Was it set up like a color, well, like a color war grand sing? where both sides were trying to say their chairs louder than the others, is there a teaching that if we obey the Torah, all these curses would be revealed to be hidden blessings? Okay, so practically speaking, this question can be asked about everything that was said. Moshe Rabbeinu was one man and he spoke and everybody heard him. So the Madrashim addressed this already, whether it was a miracle that his voice was amplified, or the different explanations. One thing is for sure, the word got out that everybody heard whatever they needed to hear. In this case, let's first go back and ask a more important question, or a more fundamental question, that the Chassidus asks. Whenever it says Nason, Nason comes from the word Matana, a gift. Anyone that gives something, so Chazal tell us, our sages tell us that it's in a form of a gift. But what is the gift? If you said bracha, bracha is a gift. But the second half, to say, I'm giving you a gift of the opposite of blessing. 
That's not exactly a gift. So the explanation is very simple, but also very profound, and teaches us a tremendous lesson in life, and then we can understand the entire story. And this is the approach, the chassidish approach. Instead of answering question by question, we look at what is the big picture? What is the general lesson? And then the details fall into place, as it should be in every situation. A good way of answering something is looking at what is the message here? What is the Torah coming to tell us? And it's interesting, it also says the words are A, behold. Not Shema, listen, behold. There are two ways that you can give a person a blessing in life. We all live our lives and we know life has all kinds of mysterious paths and twists and turns. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. The Teira Eir, from the word Heira, Heira Bachayim, Teira is an illuminator. Think of it like a lighthouse in the dark waters or in the dark paths of life, like a car with headlights. It allows you to see. So the Teira is giving us a gift. The gift can consist of two things. You're traveling down a road, and, someone, and you ask someone, which is the right way to go to my destination? And he tells you, here's the path to go. But there's another blessing. He could say to you, this isn't the path not to go on. I've been on it. I've made my mistakes. This is a dangerous path. So the gift is the clarity, the re'e, clarity, the visual clarity to know where to go, where not to go. In some ways, the clarity of where not to go can even be greater blessing than the clarity where to go. Because you can go the right places, but at times you make, make a mistake. So both of them is nesin l'fnechem hayen. Both of them are a form of clarity. It's not the curse, God forbid. It's to know what's not the right way to go. To avoid wasted time, wasted energy, and even harm, God forbid. So that's the word. So what do we have from this? That we know in life that it's not just knowing what to do, it's also knowing what not to do, which is an equal path and an equal blessing. That's on a very basic level. So the Har Grizim and Har Ibo, the two mountains, represent these two different paths. The Samach Tzedek in Eir HaTeirem, on page Tovresh Ayin Ches, if you want to look it up. Eir HaTeirem is the Samach Tzedek's big, large bulk, a series of Svarim that, where he comments and writes on each of the parshas. So there he talks about Har Grizim and Har Ibo, he talks about Apik Kabbalah, and according, and also Pichsidis and Aveda, that the word Grizim comes from words that reflect blessing. He brings from the Ponim Yofis. Grizim is Rosh Tevis, an acronym for Gimel Roshenis, and Zayin Yemeha Miluim. And it's Gematria 260, which is 10 times Havaya. The shame, the Tetragrammaton, Yud Kevovke is 26, 10 times 26 is Grizim. On the other hand, Har Ibul is a remez to Eir HaMe'urav B'cheshech. The word Ibul from the word Me'urav B'cheshech. And the remez is Rosh Tevis Erev Yeim B'ishin Lailo. Which is the Rosh Tevis of evil. Of evil. In English, evil could also mean evil. But he doesn't say that, obviously. So he brings, and then he continues to bring that grizim from the word Garzim B'riyad HaChetzev. It's like an axe in the hand of the axeman which means Grizim reflects God's flow of blessings. And on the other hand, again, Ival represents the negative side. So 
just want to read from the Pardis Erech Haribsarim. He says like this that evil is connected to Klippus, and that in the mountains themselves you have a mountain of Kedusha and a mountain of Klippa. But here's the key thing. Like I pointed out with Re'eit and Nechinesim Lefnechemayim. Even the negative is not a negative per se. It's a negative in order for us to avoid it. Or if God forbid we do wander there to transform it. It's ultimately the transformation of also the negative into, into blessings. And there are many more details that Samach Tzedek discusses if you want to look it up. But in practical Chassidah supply terms, the idea is that no matter what happens in life, whether it's the path of open revealed blessing, or at times, unfortunately, tragically, and we should never know about it, a path that would seem to be a darker path, we have to know that both of them are blessings because both of them are reflecting what is right, what you should do and what you should avoid. Now, if a person unfortunately experiences a negative thing, so we also know the concept of transforming the negative into the positive. And that's the real central theme of these first verses in Pasha Sede'i. In Kisove, which comes a few weeks later where they talk about the Teichacha, we all know the story that the Mitla Rebbe, one year, when the Alter Rebbe was not there to read the Torah, he, he would read the Torah, the Balkeira. So when the Mitla Rebbe heard the curses, or the Teichacha, the negative non-blessings, the opposite of blessings, he fainted. And when they came to and they asked him, How did, why did you faint? He said, when you heard what it says in the Torah, these terrible things, he said, but your father, every year, you hear it. Why didn't you faint last year? So he said, in the Tata length, when my father reads, or when the father reads, I only hear blessings. So it's not that different words are said, but the same words can be read in a way where it's a negative, or it can be seen as a positive when you know either how to avoid it or how to transform it. So this is a tremendous lesson in life in every possible way. As far as the, the split of the... So we have to look at different parshas in the A, then the parsha, next parsha, and then say for Yeshua, when it actually happens, that the six tribes that were placed by one mountain, six tribes by another mountain. So those details you can look up. So the story doesn't end in parsha the A, it just begins. And the details are all spelled out in those different places I just mentioned of exactly how this took place. It also discusses which tribes associated with this mountain, with this, with this mountain. But you always remember, everything is ultimately either the good or to avoid or to transform. Good. Next question that was asked on this parsha: why are we not allowed to drink blood? So in this parsha we read that it's also, it's a complete prohibition to drink any blood. The question is why? In Parshas Re'eh, dear Rabbi, in Parshas Re'eh, it says we can slaughter kosher animals to eat, but we can't drink the blood. Is there a reason for this? Is it connected to vampires? I don't understand. If the animal is considered kosher, why waste the blood when you can drink it or make soup? Is this not the sin of Baltashchis? Is it not a waste? Well, the Pasuk itself says the reason. Some Pasukim say, some don't. Here, Kidam Hua Nefesh. That's what the Pasuk says. Because the blood is the nefesh. We know that blood is the is soul energy. The, essentially, when a person eats and drinks and all the other intake, oxygen, it all turns into the human blood. 
And blood is that flow of life. It's not just another liquid. It's a liquid of life. So it's a perfectly structured that it has that type of energy. It's amazing in a certain way. Because you think of, let's say, water flowing through pipes or other liquids doesn't have that power. Blood has that power. So when the blood runs through our beings, it turns the foods and the other things we've ingested after we eliminate the waste into a life force. The human being cannot live without it. And the dam hua nefesh, that's where the nefesh resides, through the blood. So the blood is like a form of an interface between the ruchnius of the nefesh, the spirit, and etherealness, which is not tangible. On the other hand, the blood is, is tangible, so it can relate and therefore flow into the human body. But the blood, if you look at it and think about it, it's not the same type of tangible as other physical matter. It has something about it that makes it very refined, so the question, just to amplify the question, is simply this. Since all food ends up turning into blood, so why not drink blood in the first place? And the answer is because keadam hua nefesh. Something that is very, very pure, also, in its purest form, also has the capacity to also be very prone and vulnerable to toxins. For example, when a human body is intact, we're not concerned about infections and bacteria. Why? Because the skin and the hair and the outer layers protect us from these infections. Sometimes an infection, God forbid, enters, and then we have to deal with it. And the body deals with it. But why is it when, for example, when you're performing surgery, you need to have such a sterilized environment? Because the more powerful the organs are, when you expose them, they're very vulnerable. So anything with great power is very vulnerable to be contaminated. And that's why you need special sterilization, a special environment when things are more in a far more vulnerable state. That's why it says, where is Ktuma? Impurities, where do they gather? Only with his Gdusha, with his holiness. Think of it, where do maggots and parasites come? They don't come in a dry, arid area. They come to a place where there's nourishment. So wherever there's a lot of nourishment, you always have to have a form of protection. Blood is extremely, extremely sensitive in that way because it is exactly the life force. Food has to be broken down and it takes time. And then you eliminate the waste. The blood itself is nefesh. And you don't consume a nefesh because you right away have the possibility of all kinds of pollutants, spiritual pollutants, and tuma and impurities, and even on a physical level, far more easier to become infected when you're eating something like blood. I mean, it's disgusting to us in general, but we're talking now the explanation behind it. So the Teda says, you eat food, the food will break down into blood, the body will do that, eliminate the waste. Don't directly connect yourself to that, it needs to go through filters, essentially, before can actually become part of your life force within you. This also explains why certain, uh, uh, a holy body has tumor. A non-holy body does not. Wherever there's more power, there's always going to be more possibility for in the language of chassidus, for negative forces to attach themselves. So that's why we take great care when it comes to things like this. Just like we don't go into the holy of holies just like that. Cain Godel goes in a short while on Yom Kippur alone. 
Why not? It's such a holy place. Because the holiness also cannot tolerate even a blemish. That's why Kohen Godel that had a blemish would not survive. It's like a piece of dust on your finger is no big thing, but a piece of dust in your eyeball, quite irritating. So the same thing, the dam has to be preserved and we should not be directly ingesting it. Ki adam hua nefesh. The lesson for us in life is the same thing. The Ebeshter created the world, but he created filters and he created regulators, or in the language of Chassidus, Tzimtzumim, and Halomas Vestedim, and Parsoyas and Mesochim, partitions, sheaths, shields. Because if you look at the sun directly, using that as an example, you can get blinded. That's why you need to have a certain, sh- a certain um, uh, sunglasses or something that, that um, filters that light. And the same thing is in this context with Dam. Okay. And one more question on the Parsha. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it says in the Parsha that an evil idolatrous city must be destroyed. Called Iran Edachas. What is the criteria for an entire city to fall into this category? I remember learning that the reason the generation of the flood was pure evil and needed to be destroyed was because they actually passed laws promoting and inspiring people to commit violent crimes. That sounds similar to things that are happening today where violent criminals are being paraded as heroes and the police are not allowed to enforce law and order. It would be advisable for anyone who still lives in the open sewer called New York City to purchase flood insurance and build an ark. Okay, Uh, different random thoughts here, but bottom line is this. First, let's define an idolatrous city, what that means exactly, and why idol worship is such a terrible thing. You know, what does God really care? People want to be stupid and worship a, uh, a piece of stone or wood or a star or sun or the moon? Why does it bother? Is God, we know, is jealous? It's quite secure as being God. It wouldn't be jealous of false gods. The problem is this. When a person replaces God with some other entity, it's really another form of self-worship. It undermines the very purpose and meaning of God. The whole idea is to understand that we are creatures created by something greater than us. And that we, in order to curb and to tame our subjective self-interest, it requires a bittel, a yirashamayim, a kabbalah sale to that which is greater than us. As soon as a person replaces that, it undermines the whole civilization. It's not just a personal thing. It means you've created something, you've defined what God is about. When it should be the other way around. God created you in his image and is expecting of you to live up to certain standards. Instead, you've now created a God in your image that's convenient for you. So once you do that, it's just a matter of time. Yes, that doesn't mean a person suddenly becomes a criminal, but that is the foundation of it all. Self-worship or creating things that you're worshiping, whether it's money, gold, or an idol, an actual idol, or some other form of worship. Of course, there are categories that Torah delineates what's considered idol worship, but that's why even a mashu, even a tinge of it, because it undermines the whole principle of a human being's discipline, a human being's accountability, answering to a higher authority. So much broader than just the idea of not having a false god. It's not replacing God with something else. The Rambam at the beginning of Hilchus of Edezar explains how it evolved 
from faith in a God that was greater than and complete belief and acceptance in God, and then people looking for ways to identify more with it, with things that were more tangible, whether it's a star or something we can relate to, and ultimately creating shrines on earth, and then everything else that comes with that, including the corruption of human beings um, capitalizing and exploiting others, saying, we will provide for you your connection to something greater. We have a direct connection to God, and God is beyond all of us. But we still have a relationship with God, and that's the critical component. So when you have a city that's completely committed, that's basically a city, a criminal city, that's going to be a city divided all about ourselves. So when there's certain cities that became so idolatrous, they were actually self-destroyed. Same thing what happened by the Mabel, Mola Oras Hamas. The whole earth was filled with crime. Many crimes. But above all, it was about denying a God. So it wasn't a punishment, it was cause and effect. What do you think happens when people are completely driven by self-interest? They will self-destruct. There's no way that they can coexist. Maybe in the beginning they rebel against God, but in, in essence they're rebelling against each other and against the sensitivity and the morality and the ethics that is required to keep any civilization in place. So idolatry at its heart is the root of all problems. In the broadest sense of the word, you're replacing God with something else. And once you do that, then we know there's no end. That's why the founding fathers were wise when they wrote, all people, all men are created equal. We'll say people which is what they meant, created equal and endowed by the Creator with inalienable rights because they understood this point, that if you don't have a Creator, you don't have equality. Then one person, whoever is more powerful, whoever has more money, can control the others, as we see throughout history. And this is even with, this is even with a God. So the critical component that there's something that's an equalizer, that's greater than us all, that we submit to, and therefore respecting God means respecting another person and the rights that that person has because that person is a child created in the image of the divine. Okay. As far as what's going on today, look, I don't know if the writer here was intending to suggest that there are cities that are here in Adachas, that it's not up to us to decide that, Today, we don't, those rules do not apply. First of all, no one has the right, and it may not even be in existence, that there is such a city. It's more about individuals. And secondly, we were not given the authority today to destroy anything. You're talking about the time of the Teda, well, I should say not the time of the Teda, the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, the time of the Beis Amikdash. There's certain times that, there was, that this was applicable today. The Teda, of course, is timeless. But I meant the time, the time, that time when the Teda was given, when the nations of the world were pagan nations and there was all kinds of issues to deal with, these laws applied. Today they're more in the conceptually, absolutely. That's why our goal is to teach and educate and inspire everyone, every city, every nation, every empire, every part of the world, every community, to live up to the standards that the Torah expects of all of us, including the Sheva Mitzvah B'Neich, the seven universal laws of that are the backbone, the foundation of all civilizations. Okay, let's move to the next question.
question. A call for unity in response to the latest tragedies. So this is something I spoke about. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Going back to your discussion on the tragedies that the Jewish people have faced in the last several months, and your suggestion that a renewed commitment to Ardus, unity, and baseless love should take place, I'm wondering if you feel it would be a good idea for a campaign of all Jews to do something together regardless of their affiliation. I know that the Rebbe had encouraged a unity Torah. Would that be something that you feel should take place again? What about a learning schedule focusing on Avish Yisrael? Or is there something else that the Rebbe emphasized as important in uniting the Yidin that could be taken on with greater importance and impact now? Thank you so much for this wonderful and important show. So I'm very glad that you're writing because it's exactly the point that I made and I'm, hope, I'm happy that it's inspiring you and others. And the truth is we all can inspire each other. Um, and every idea is valid and legitimate. What shall I say? I mean, the ideas you suggested. As far as the terror of unity, if you recall in the beginning of COVID, a group of young people um, young Ingalite, young, what we say, um, came up with the idea of uh, United for Protection and dot com, where they wrote a Sefer Teda and now began a second one. Precisely for that reason, based on the story of the Balshemtiv, that there was a time in the Balshemtiv there was a Magefa, an epidemic, and the Balshemtiv said to write a Teda and make sure that everybody has a letter in that Teda, because Teda is the highest Shishim Ribu, yes, Shishim Ribu, Asius Teda that there's 600,000 letters in the Torah correspond to the 600,000 general souls. So each soul, its life force, its life connection is through Torah. Um, any form of activities that add an Avis Yisrael, an Agdus Yisrael, absolutely. So we have to put our heads together, either do it collectively or do it individually. But anything you've suggested, learning schedule focus on Avis Yisrael, I remember when the Rebbe gave out Kuntus Avis Yisrael, when he himself composed it and put it together in the summer of Lamed Tafshin Lamed Zayin. And that was the, the, the final of the 10 Mifzayim, Mifza Avis Yisrael, right there to learn Kuntus Avis Yisrael with the collection from Teresh Sav and Teresh Peh, and from Medrashim and from Kabbalah and from Chsidis about the, the meaning of Avis Yisrael, even just learning in Derech Mitzvah from the Tzemach Tzedek. It's a beautiful, beautiful mimer and relatively easy to understand in, in contrast to all of Chassidus. The mitzvah Avis Yisrael. We're coming to the month of El. What better way to prepare for a new year than to unite in a stronger way? In the month of Av, which is the last week that we're in this month, as we've discussed, Av, Sinas Chinam, baseless hatred destroyed the base Amidish. So the counterforce to that is baseless love, unconditional love. And then we take the, the negatives, the, the curses of this month. We talk to Har Evil, and we talk about Har Grizim, and we transform it. Aryeh, which is the sign, the mazel of this month of Av, is what is it an acronym of? El, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippurim, So from the very Av, we give birth to El and the other, and what El brings on, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Heshain El is a month of compassion, a month when the king is in the field, Melech Basada, which we'll talk about next week and in the coming weeks. So there's no better keli, no better container, no better way of preparing for these type of blessings 
that give us health and give us life and blessings only reveal blessings through unity. There's no greater thing than unity. God did not find a keli that contains blessing, only shalom, excluding all others. Shalom, unity, harmony. So I can't overstate the case. I'm glad you brought it up. And I think absolutely any idea is legitimate. When I say any idea, it should be done, obviously, with consulting with Arav, the Mashpia, to make sure it's an idea that's apitera. But anything in that category, and we have many ideas, things that Rebbe did. Rebbe, of course, established Mifsa Sefer Teira. And one of the things was also Mitzah Shemira, protecting. Mifsat Film has an element of protecting from enemies without. So the more we can focus on this, the better. That's what I have to say about this. Okay. Next, segueing into another interesting question. Hello, Rabbi. I am a retired carpenter and a World War II veteran from the Bronx and currently in an assisted living facility. I have 12 great-grandchildren. In two weeks, I will celebrate my 100th birthday and my entire family will be here to make a party. What is one important lesson of Jewish wisdom I can impart to my family to ensure that they will have the passion to carry on our Jewish traditions. Thank you. Wait, what, what a question. What a beautiful thing. Well, first of all, I want to wish you many healthy long years and, uh, that, and touched, very touched. It's overwhelming, actually, to hear how you're focused and that is your concern, how to convey to your family that connection, that passion. So, I'm sure there are many lessons that one can impart. I'll just focus on what comes to mind. The most single, most important thing and to not just have our families and our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren perpetuate Jewish tradition and heritage and the legacy that has been passed on to us for millennia, but to do so, as you accurately say, with passion. Because then you know the person is completely in. When you do things in order to satisfy someone else, or mechanically, or by rote, or robotically, mitzvah sanoshim alamada, it usually will not last. I hope it does, but it doesn't have that energy, that vitality. So it's, you, put the, you put the finger right on the button, it's correct, passion. So how do you evoke passion in someone? They have to feel the relevance of the Yiddishkeit. So if, well, there's one message that I would suggest you convey is to find some way to explain how Teirah and Mitzvahs is not just something we're obligated to do, but it's, extre- it's the single most important thing to do because it is what gives us life and sustenance. So I'll give an example. Let's just take the prayer, Moida'ani in the morning. You say in the morning, thank you, for returning my soul to me. You as a hundred-year-old man have the credibility of having said this for over a hundred years. What's the message? What's the relevant message? Not, not lip service, not robotic words. The message is that you have a soul that God gave you and renewed that this morning as the soul that's indispensable. You have a role to play 
and a contribution to make that you and only you can make. And that's where the Torah begins with the first and most important statement about a human being. Not that the human being is an intellectual creature, an emotional creature. That you are created in the divine image. You're a piece of godliness in this world. And you have the capacity and the power to do something, to change your environment, your sphere of influence, in ways that no one else can do. When a person feels that indispensability, that necessity, that it can't be done without them, that changes everything. So I would suggest trying to impart and saying, I have been here on this earth for a while. It's the greatest blessing is to have life, but even greater blessing is to understand that life as a gift given to you for you to do something with it. And Torah and Mitzvahs gives us those skills, those tools of what to do and how to do. Obviously, this is not the place and we don't have the time to go through all the mitzvahs. But choose one. Even starting with Moidani, on a mitzvah, it's a tefillah. Because that sets the tone for the entire day. Convey that with passion, with words from the heart, it will enter the heart. The second point I would make is that we are all like runners on a marathon. History is the marathon. Every generation carries the baton for its leg of the journey. You have carried the baton for now 100 years. God bless you for many more years, healthy years. Your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, they are all carriers of the baton. You need to feel the gift and the responsibility because a marathon cannot be complete unless everyone carries that there, runs their leg and carries their part baton. We were also promised that this is the finish line. So to convey to your great-grandchildren, to all your family, that sense of urgency, urgency, and it's something only you can do. I don't know the details of your family, I don't know the grandchildren, where they are, but... As a great-grandfather, you have the power to inspire them in that fashion. And again, I want to say, God bless you, happy birthday, many, many healthy years, and use your time with the wisdom, the sagacity, and the experience and seasoning to indeed inspire. And I cannot say how powerful it is to hear that that's what you're thinking about. Most people thinking about their own needs or whatever it is that they're going through. So it's great to hear that, and I wish it's an inspiration for all of us and every one of us. Okay. Even though everything is related, but this seems to be an unrelated question, so let me go to that, and that is, is it appropriate to induce a spiritual experience through a drum circle? During the summer, in many places, people like to gather around a campfire and do a drum circle where everyone brings a drum or even pots and pans as per percussion instruments, as percussive or percussion instruments. Sometimes the rhythms can be ecstatic and people dance around the fire and have a spiritual experience. Is this type of event permissible according to the Torah? 
Of course, if it's just being done to have fun and not to Chaz Vashon participate in a Vedazar of any kind. Yeah. If not, is there a way a drum circle can be done in a kosher way so that people can benefit from the ecstatic spiritual experience and channel those feelings toward Hashem? Has the Rebbe ever given his approval to use mu- musical instruments to induce spiritual experiences? Wasn't there a band of Levites that would sing and play instruments at the Beis Amigdash to help elicit these feelings from the worshippers? Do we have the musical notes from any of the songs played in the Beis Amigdash written down so we can sing them today? By the way, as a teenager, I had the good fortune to attend the Shabbos Fabrengen in 770, Eastern Parkway, and the Rebbe asked all of the, of the few thousand people there to sing together, and the beautiful and meaningful songs had a powerful effect on me and brought me to tears and was an uplifting spiritual experience for me. I was told one of the songs sung in 770 was called the Benini, and it was composed for the Rebbe's father-in-law. I was able to find it online, and the powerful song still brings me to tears every time I hear it. Sorry for so many questions. Regards from Woodstock, New York, a magical town with a great artistic vibe, and many musically inclined old Jews like me that live up the mountain and yearn for spirituality. Your Sunday night Torah class is fantastic. Thank you and keep up the good work. Well, I'm very touched by that as well. So first of all, full disclosure. I myself in our organization, Meaningful Life Center, over the years have run some drum circles. We did one a few times on Hanukkah and Purim, I believe. And yes, I've seen and experienced that uh, type of magic. So, as you clearly qualify, as long as it's not breaking any halacha, and it's not being done in any way that is uh, inappropriate, in other words, modest-wise, modesty-wise, men and women shouldn't be used in as, a, as a type of uh, way of mingling, but rather respectful of all the boundaries that are necessary. I mean, it's like any type of people coming together at a kumzitz and singing. So the fact that you're using drums, there's nothing about drums that make it in any way inappropriate. But like anything, if it's not done right, it can lead to other things. So it has to be done with a certain kedusha and holiness in mind. Not that it itself is holy, but it should be done l'shem shamayim, used as an opportunity. I remember when we did it, I felt necessary to put it in context and try to give a, take, a, a state, taste of an experience of sound and sight, that these are two of our senses, and how can we use the sounds, the primal sounds of drumming and the experience, once you get into it, to, for something that is holy. So I shared a few words. It wasn't just we sat down and did a drum circle. And throughout it, we also created a theme, how you can tell a story, a narrative of your life and always with the goal of not just an ecstatic experience. It always has to be towards some end, and that end has to be a practical one, to make you a more refined person, a more responsible person, a person that takes on more resolutions to be better, more committed in your own spiritual journey and path. If you have those things in place, then it's a means, not an end, the drum circle or any other type of experience like that. It has to be a means toward that type of way of elevating people just like a beautiful concert would do, just like a beautiful song does, as you accurately point out by the Fabrengen. And I should mention, it wasn't just once. Every Fabrengen had its songs. There were times that were the Rebbe directed a certain particular song to be sung. 
the Rebbe was very engaged with it. But generally, generally speaking, a Fabrengen, a big part of it is the music and the song. And correct, the Levites did compose songs. Music and song has always been part and parcel of divine experiences. Tefillah is sometimes called shira, song. Prayer is called song. Then, of course, there's the song at the sea. Shira sayam, az yashir meishir b'nei Yisrael. That when Moses and the people sung. Shira's dvera, dvera's song. And there's different songs, the Pasha Chukas, the different shiras that they sang of praise. Song is the language of the soul. I've talked about this in other programs, but just briefly, song is the language of the soul. Alter Rebbe says that. He interprets that every soul needs a song to be able to enter to the next level. The 15 Shir Hamailas. In Tehillim, we say the 15 verse, the first 15 Psalms called Shir Hamailas, the song of the ascents, the song of the steps, because in the Besamikdash there were 15 steps. And to go from one step to the next, you needed a song. Because soul movement, soul transportation is only possible. Through song, a body travels has legs. Thank God, has vehicles, but a soul requires a song to travel. So, song is again part and parcel, an essential part of Jewish tradition throughout history, especially in the Hasidic tradition. So, I think I answered the question. Just want to say one more thing. Unfortunately, because, like I said before, with dam blood, because song is so powerful. Could also be used in the other way, you know, a way that eliminates boundaries, call it transcendence, but transcendence needs to also have discipline. And song has become related to other activities that are not necessarily holy and kosher. So we all understand the risks. That's why I began by saying it has to be within the context of, of a holy activity with the good purposes in mind. That's why it's good to get to consult with either a rabbi or mashpia or someone, a spiritual mentor that understands all the dynamics and understands that song opens up deeper intimate levels in the soul and that has to be also done in the proper environment, in the proper context and not used in any way that creates some form of uh, boundary breaking or things that can lead to different things that are not necessarily appropriate behavior. Now there's a very thin line between spirituality, sensuality and sexuality. And it's always important to keep that in mind as we open up deeper channels and deeper connections to our own inner intimate beings. Going to another question now. I got received these questions a while back, but I've been always waiting to have the time to address them properly. This is also one of the reasons some of the questions I don't answer immediately because I want to apply myself. I don't want to rush through it. I want to get, do justice to it. And some of them need a little more elaboration. So here the question is, how to deal with family opposed to my choice to be a chassid? Dear Rabbi, thank you for your perspective on matters. And I frankly really like your attitude. I would like to get your take on the following predicament within which I find myself. Over a, period, over a long period of time, I have gravitated toward Hasidus in general, and a specific Rebbe and his Hasidim in particular. My family being of strong misnagdic persuasion, which means opposed to Hasidic, to Hasidim, have not reacted graciously, graciously to such. 
My father-in-law, however, took it to the next level by virtually cutting me and my family out of his family through threats, bans, and the like, which distresses my wife immensely. I personally couldn't care less, obviously. This seems, to le- this seems to leave me with an ultimatum. Either I denounce all connection to my life's passion and thereby plunge myself into a Murano-like existence, or I discount them as mere haters, with my own family suffering as a result. So far, I have chosen neither, the easiest way out. What, should, what would you do? Thank you. Okay, well, it's not, unfortunately, it's not the first time this has happened. So here are a few thoughts. And the, the, real, the real question is also broader because this affects not just your situation, but many others, which I'm going to read another question regarding this. In general, with religion, family, that when people become on their, go on their journey and they make decisions, sometimes it alienates those around them. But yours is acute because there's also more than alienation, it's a, really a hatred, a resistance. Now, I don't know the characters and the personalities involved. That's why I have to always qualify, because different people have different approaches. I would always begin with the hope and call Yisrael B'cheskes Kashus, that everybody is considered innocent until proven guilty. And in the context here, I mean that maybe there is a way, an opening. Because at the end of the day, the people who oppose Hasidishkeit, or Hasidim, or Hasidus, is due to ignorance. They don't know what it is, and they've been fed by somebody poison that has poisoned their minds. Now, are all Hasidim perfect human beings? Yeah, but not all non-Hasidim are perfect human beings. So we're not talking about that, that everyone has flaws. But that Hasidus itself, especially Tadus Hasidus, and the people, yes, you're going to find beautiful chassidim, you're going to find, unfortunately, there's always the other side. But that's not what we're addressing. The actual milus of chassidim is what it comes to teach. And we're not talking about trying to turn everybody into chassidim. It's simply unknown by people. And then there's also the negative stereotypes and myths. And as I said, been poisoned. Yes, been poisoned, like any type of racism or discrimination or prejudice. So how do you deal with that? Especially if, you, if it's someone you don't have a relationship with, okay, it's their problem. But if you do have a connection, and I deal with this a lot, not just with family, I deal with all kinds of people. So the first thing is try to educate. But not in a condescending way, let, let me teach you something you don't know. Because the person who's opposing it, in, your, in this case your wife's family, it sounds like, or your own family, or your, father, your wife's family, they clearly feel very confident that they're with their position. That's why they're taking this strong position. So I would like to look for a soft spot, so to speak, an open door. Maybe your mother-in-law, maybe your father-in-law may not be the first person to begin with, maybe some of your brothers-in-law, sisters-in-law, siblings. Can there be a, a civil conversation on the topic without it turning and flaring into a whole battle? So I'm hoping, yes, if indeed that could happen, and not in a confrontational way, and not in a debate format, and not challenging, just saying, you know, before, let me tell you, let me share with you. You love me, you love my wife, you love our, you love our children. We're all part of one family. It's like I read a book. You may not know anything about them. I want to share with you something. Now, if that's impossible, that whatever reason, 
the family is so resistant to even a conversation, then we go to the next aspect of this. I don't think it has to be Murano-like and, and fake and lie. I would not do that and just make believe that you left the whole thing. It's just not honest. I would then say, look, we love each other. We're family. Why can't we have a decent civil relationship? I mean, we're, if, if when Hitler was, God forbid, we would all be in the gas chambers equally, whether you're a chassid or not a chassid. So we can't find a way to find a common denominator out of love to it only through hate. Only haters unite us. I would look for ways to, even if we can't fully understand each other, ways to, to be able to have an opportunity. And if your father-in-law or anyone else has a taina, by all means, tell me what is it that you're opposed to. I'm being inspired as a Jew. Would it be better I shouldn't be inspired? And here's how I'm inspired. And in no way has it weakened my commitment to Taylor Mitzvah. On the contrary, it strengthened it. I'm not saying you should say it all in words, but that should be the message. And that brings me to the most important point maybe of all. It's your, your very behavior. It could be that the Chassidish especially the opposition, has caused you to become more entrenched and more stubborn and maybe bringing out some of the negatives which the, the, your wife's family is witnessing. The more they see that you've become more refined, more elevated, more transcendent, more bitledic, more humble, it's hard to ignore that. That says something is happening that people who we love. Now, you didn't, you didn't tell, share what your, I mean, you just say your wife is very upset about it, but is your wife on the same page with you? That's another thing that needs to be addressed. She like feel like you do, or she's just going along with you, and therefore she's between a rock and a hard place, you and her family. So I would like to believe that you and her are doing it together, and that's vital, that you be on the same place. And your wife should feel comfortable with what you have embraced. If she does not, that needs, that's another discussion, how to deal with that. I mean, I'm assuming you love each other. I'm assuming there's a real relationship, and it's not being strained or, by, by, this, uh, by these issues. But on the other hand, how could it not be strained? But that this is bringing you together stronger, that you can put your heads together. And finally, I believe that you must talk to a third party, you and your wife or individually, and really be able to express everything because there are factors here that I cannot really spell out that I don't really know. Nuances, who we're dealing with, again, you and your wife, are you on the same page, not on the same page? So someone who knows the situation more depth and more intimately, more in detail, can advise further on this topic. And I'll say one more point since we're already on it. You have to always be thinking for two people. Since you're the one that introduced Chassidus into your life, you need to be understanding that the people that are opposed, they simply don't know. So it's not an equal in a way. Not that you should feel condescending, God forbid. But I mean to say that you have to be even more sensitive and more loving and demonstrating what Chassidus and Chassidishkeit really represents. Okay, another question, which is related but a different, a different angle. Religion alienating friends. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I am a big fan of the, of the show, and I know you are making a real lasting difference in people's lives. I have been observant for a few years now, and I'm starting to find a hashkafa, 
that works for me, a perspective, a philosophy. However, day-to-day interactions and general enthusiasm are very difficult as my relationship with family has worsened. Relating to past friends is challenging, and I realize now that they are negative influences, and I'm also too young to start Shaduchim. The religious community where I live is very small, and basically there are not a lot of genuine connections I can make without fear of judgment, hostility, or familial rejection. While loving Hashem encompasses my life, it is hard to get through the days without any healthy, purposeful human interactions. If I mention my eagerness to learn in a religious environment in the near future, I am assumed to be brainwashed, a disappointment, and a cult member who will never be able to provide for a family. I thought as time went on, people would be more accepting, but it is often difficult to get through the days. Please offer me some strength, advice, or words of encouragement toward pursuing healthy relationships while still staying true to myself. Again, I qualify this by not knowing all the details and, all, and therefore not being able to suggest all the options. Like, it sounds that you're somewhat isolated. Do you have a community that you do identify with? Or are you still with your family or the structure that you grew up with and therefore almost everybody is either hostile or not understanding of your position? Because it's critical to have support people who are like-minded, people who help you grow, you can learn, study together, who you can consult with, receive some mentoring, especially as you suggest, as you write that you're young. So it's vital to have a support system in this journey, or else it gets extremely difficult. Your support system, your existing support system, seems to be concerned about this. They may be concerned about you. They may even have legitimate reasons, but that's why it's critical to have a healthy support system. Just as I said earlier to, the, to the previous questioner, it's also vital to figure out how to repair, or at least in some way improve your relationships with the family around you. And there it goes back to what I said before, and I'll say it again now. Not that you have to teach them or inspire them, but they need to understand where you're coming from. They love you. They need to see that what you have discovered as a Jew and your religious education or the things you're pursuing are making you a better person. And you don't really speak about details, father, mother, siblings, but assuming that you have all of that around you, they see you become a more refined, a more sensitive, a more gentle person. What do you think is going to happen? People who love you will be wondering, where is that coming from? The concern is always that perhaps your religion and your journey is causing you to separate from them, not just them separating from you, and they see you as becoming a stranger. Remember also from an an ego point of view that especially parents can also feel like you're judging them because you're rejecting what they brought you up. They thought they brought you up as a good boy or good girl. And instead, you're rejecting that. So they see it as a rejection of them. You have to keep that in mind. That doesn't mean you have to compromise, but it means you need to be sensitive. And you need to in some way invite them into your life. Definitely not create more rifts. Now this goes back to what type of people they are, how receptive they are to that. 
critical thing to remember is that religion or chassidus or whatever journey you're on should never exclude the people that you love. Now, they may not want to go on the same journey, but they have to see you as part of them, not as you're separating yourself. Of course, the questions come up, you're kosher and your home may not be kosher, your family. So there are sensitive ways to address that as well. It doesn't say, I'm not going to eat here. I'm not coming home because... Sometimes you may have to just sit down with your mother or someone that can listen and say where your standards are from and why you're this way. Instead of seeing it like, you know, this alien that suddenly doesn't eat certain foods that he always ate or she always ate. So there's a lot of guidance necessary here. Not so much what your position is, but how to present it and how to communicate it to the people that are around you. Now, there may be people who will always be hostile. Fine. So we divide and conquer, so to speak. Meaning focus on those that you can have a relationship with. And I go back to my original point. Build a support system around you. It's very difficult without that. And you must have a mentor that understands the situation on the ground, close up, that can advise more details in this discussion here. Okay. I want to do a follow-up. See this question and then the essays. Okay. The follow-up is last week in honor of Rabbi Levi Yitzchok, the Rebbe's father's 77th yard site on the 20th of Av. So I spoke about that. So the question was about the Mogan Dovin and Rabbi Matseva. So I said I did not recall information. I had a vague recollection that the Rebbe had said to leave it. Obviously, it wouldn't be there. But here's what one person shared with me. And then I got some more information, which I'll share with you, and also a little surprising uh, revelation about all of this as well. This is what I remember hearing about the Matseva, which is the tombstone of the Rebbe's father in Almata, Rabbi Levi Yitzchok, from my great uncle, Yoske Nemotin, who lived in Almata and took care of Rabbi Levi and Rebbe Tzachana in the last years of his life, and later took upon himself to guard the Matseva, the tombstone, that at one point, I believe it was in the late 60s or probably very early 70s, they noticed the crack in the Matseva, and they were supposed to replace the Matseva, so, the, so they communicated with the Rebbe. And one of the things that came up is about whether they should change what says on the Matseva, meaning the text that was inscribed there. And the Rebbe said, leave the Matseva exactly as is. Whatever was there before shouldn't, should still be there again. Don't change, don't add, don't take anything off, which, which included the Mug and David. The reason there was a Mogandovit is plain and simple that in Russia, every Jewish Matseva has a Mogandovit simply to identify that as a Jewish, a Jewish Matseva, a Jewish tombstone. For additional information, you can contact the Garelics who are involved in the actual replacement of the Matseva. Maybe they have more details. I think they are cousins of yours as, or something. Correct. That's all correct. So surprisingly, to my own surprise, I didn't even know this last Sunday, I ended up in Almata on the 20th of Av. <laughs> it's a group of wonderful 200 and close to 230 people, a chartered plane by El Al that took off a Tuesday evening, 12-hour trip to Almata, deep in Central Asia, closer to Beijing and Mongolia than to any other part of the world, where Almata, the city where Rablevi Yitzhak was exiled, first in a in a city called Chile, then they let him go to Almata, where he passed away tragically in 1944. There was no Jewish cemetery, so they buried him in a non-Jewish cemetery. 
and the tombstone does indeed have a Star of David on it, as I just said, a Mogan David. And when I was there, we fabrained, there was a 48-hour marathon, a whiz. I'm still spinning from it, because 12 hours in the air. You land there, it's 10 hours ahead of New York time. You're 20 hours on the ground, and then a 12-hour trip back. So 24 hours in the air, 20 hours on the ground, and that's almost 40, a little less than 48 hours. No time to sleep. We fabrained all Wednesday night. And one of the things that I heard there was about the tombstone and about how it was taken care of. That initially, it was just a little place and it was completely crowded by, around by all kinds of non-Jewish cemetery. So you can imagine what it was like. But then they built a little hut, a hut an oil around it. Still a small space. Maybe seven, eight people can go near the tombstone at one time. But hundreds of people now milling there and coming there and Chafav was wonderful to see because I heard that um, there were the years, five, ten years ago, where it was locked. No one even knew. It was locked on the yard side. So it's something quite inspiring to see that amidst all this darkness in Central Asia, deep, deep Kazakhstan, that there's an ember burning. That's how I looked at it. So though on one hand you see how isolated and desolate the place is, but the spark is burning. And Jews are coming and saying Tillim and saying Mainaloshin and praying. So Hashgacha Pratis would have it. And when I came out from the oil, oh, it was the last time before we went on the buses back to the airport, I meet Rabbi Garelik, who's the Rebbe Shliach in Siberia. He's a cousin of mine. His father is my father's first cousin. We share grandmothers. We share uh, grandmothers, our sisters, our grandmothers, our sisters. We share great-grandmothers. And I asked him exactly what happened. She says in 1972, he was by the Rebbe, his father, who's an architect, and told the Rebbe, the Rebbe asked how far are the Shechenim, the neighbors from his father, meaning how far they, where their tombs and their grave sites. So he depicted it, and they're pretty close. And this is what he says, the Rebbe, his father said. The Rebbe, the, the Rebbe says, said, like staring out through the window, he said, maybe it's an idea to bring him here. In other words, to move the remains of Rav Levi Yitzchak to here to New York. But then the Rebbe immediately said, meanwhile, let, let, leave, and leave everything the way it is. Mogan David is a symbol of being Jewish. That's its significance. So everything was left exactly as it is when they repaired it and rebuilt it. I'm sure there are more details, and I'll try to find out, but this fills in a little piece of the story. I will say that it was uh, quite an awesome experience, you know, seeing, being someone that sat at the feet of the Rebbe and seeing the Rebbe's dedication to his mother and father, the years when the Rebbe's mother was alive till, the, till the 1964, Vav Tishrei, when she passed away, the Rebbe would go visit her every day. And I felt when we came there, when I entered the first time, that the Rebbe also visited his father every day, but just not physically. By every Shabbos, every Fabrengen, elaborating and explaining one of the pieces of his father's notes on Zohar, on Tanya, and Agar Satshuva. And it was, uh, it's uh, something to see when you see father-son connection and all the different things I experienced, that you could see the Rebbe who acknowledged and would talk about, not often, but enough to appreciate the, how he was shaped and defined 
his mysterious nefesh, his commitment. Not to be silent, even in times of challenge. How that was all attributed to his father and mother. So, much more to say about it. Maybe we'll have time the next weeks. I'll talk more about it. But it's definitely an inspiration that we, as children of the Rebbe, Shinantan Levanech Ela Tamidim, students are children, that we try at least to emulate some of that um, connection and perpetuation of the commitment and dedication that the Rebbe had and passed on to us. One of the lessons I take from that, and I will do my part to try to live up to it in stronger and greater ways through the programs I do, through my classes and teachings and writings. And I hope you do the same. Okay. The question, Chassidus question, Dear Rabbi Simon, is it significant that there are three weeks of mourning and seven weeks of consolation? To me it seems as if God is giving extra consolation by an extra four weeks, if my math is correct. So it appears this is an opportune time <clears throat> to receive God's blessings because he's giving them out now abundantly. May we all cash in and receive as much as possible and may, the next, may, and may next year's three weeks of mourning be transformed into a joyous holiday in the third Beis Amigdash. Amen. Your math is correct and it's interesting. Yes, three weeks of affliction plus the Paranusa and Shiva Dinachemta, seven weeks of comfort and consolation. So besides that, it's four more, more than double, like Nachamu, Nachamu, because you can't just have a comfort, you need to have a comfort that also fills the gap. Because in Yiddishkeit, in Torah, especially Chassidus, it's not enough to go back to square one. Because then what do we gain? Every Yerid is Tzayr Chaliyah. So if there was some setback, it has to be turned, the liability, into an, into an asset. Akiva Nechamtani, Akiva Nechamtani, double. Nachamu, Nachamu. But there's an additional point which I did discuss in previous weeks. Rabbi Hillel Paracha has a fascinating Maimach Siddhis where he talks about Kabbalah, Apich Siddhis, the three and the seven. The three being three moichen, the mind, the cognitive faculties, Chachma Bin Adas, and the seven emotions, the seven weeks, the seven emotions. From Chesed through Malchus. Now you may think, one second, moichen is a very high level, so he explains it's the teacher, using the example of a teacher, who withholds and is silent, preparing for a greater revelation in his deep love for his student. But the student doesn't see that, so the moichin can be concealed. Those are the three weeks of concealment of from Shivasa Batamu's 17th of Thomas to Tishabov. And then comes the revelation through the seven weeks of emotions, which is of course a relationship. And now a deeper one than ever because it's driven by that deep love. So it's like in a sense he withdrew in order to reveal even more. There's a lot more to this, but that's the central explanation. And then it's followed by two more weeks of Tiyufta, of Tshuva. That's the weeks from Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur where the Haftar is about Shuvah Yisrael, about Tshuva. It's two weeks because when you come from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, it's more than, it's more than seven days. So the, the Haftar is there, Vayelach, or Nitzavim Vayelach, and Hazinu, depending on the Kfirs, the different schedules. So that's the significance. 
Now we conclude, as usual, with the sixth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest. We're talking about the 32nd place winners. The essay in English, Just Not Feeling It, by Hani Herzog, age 21, teacher at Lubavitch Senior Girls' School in London, England. What to do when you don't have the feelings. The essay in Hebrew for men, V'yisatsev al-libay bashkofas tezachsidus, discussing the end of Pasha Bereshis, of Pichsidus, which is where God says he regrets creating the world when he saw all the sins. What does that mean? And then, of course, he saves it through Noyach and his family. So that's by Rav, Rav Royal Tor, Tor, in Beit Sha'an, Israel. The essay in Hebrew, women, is Halayla Hazeh, a discussion of the four of the Fir Kashas on Pesach in a psychological, emotional, and Hasidic interpretation by Mrs. Irit Sipori, Kiryat Shmon in Israel. And finally, the creative submission, A Soul of Flame, in the form of short story form. Shane Rachel Goldstein, age 19, student, based Chana Tzva Seminary, hometown Brooklyn, New York. The essay in English and the creative can be seen at chassidusapply.com and in diraloy.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org, the Hebrew essays, the men and the women. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 365. We could already say, we start from Tuba Av, definitely going into the Erev Rishchideshel and Rishchideshel, Shana Teva Masuk, everyone should have a very blessed year. But we begin the preparations to account for the previous year and prepare for the new year. Be well, be healthy, and we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapplied.com slash donate.